You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Nate Hilger, who is data scientist, recovering academic, and author of a book right here called The Parent Trap, How to Stop Overloading Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis. Welcome, Nate. Thank you very much, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. So there's a lot in this book that I found interesting. And one of the things that I think was among the most important points you're trying to make in the book is that we spend a lot of time talking about education, right? We spend a lot of time talking about inequality in education. And we talk a lot about how we can redress, right, imbalances in education that ultimately lead to lifetime differentials in income and success and, and so forth. And I think you, you point out, and this number actually astonished me, I'm, I'm still trying to make sense of the math, but you said that when we look at a child's time on earth, the amount of time that they spend in the school environment is actually quite small. I mean, it might be 10%, less than 20% of the time they spend in school. And the rest of the time, they're usually among friends, but probably mostly among family. And therefore, a lot of the differentials in life outcomes can be traced back to differences in the home environment. Now, normally, if I think of a parent hears that, they're like, oh my gosh, that means that I'm responsible for all this. <laughs> and that's going to potentially freak out a lot of parents. And so I think a lot of parents were hardened by some recent research that got a lot of press that seemed to suggest that parents don't really make much of an impact. And I think you're pushing back against that and saying that parents or the parental environment or the home environment makes a huge impact, right? But this is something which we can perhaps alleviate through public investment. So a lot of interesting points here in the book. But again, I didn't even mention this term parent traps. Maybe the thing to start off with is like, hey, what's this trap that you're talking about in the book? Yeah. Why did we crib the title of the Disney movie for this book? The trap that the title is referring to, it, there's a few of these traps that, that I really try to highlight. The first most obvious one is these really unrealistic expectations that we place on parents. Once we really appreciate what is involved in child skill development, and we start to recognize that this is not a cozy, warm, natural sort of sideshow, but it's actually a really complicated, difficult activity, much like construction or flying airplanes or other really advanced sectors of the economy. Once we reframe how we see child development, it starts to become clear that asking parents to organize 90% of this really complicated activity on their own, in their spare time, on their own dollar is not a realistic expectation. So that's the first trap. There are a couple more traps that I'd like to highlight. The second trap is that as you mentioned, when we start talking about this reality that parents can't do what we're asking them to do, or at least most of them, everybody closes up. Everybody gets freaked out and thinks you're blaming parents or you're ranking parents in terms of, oh, rich parents are good, poor parents are bad. People assume you're saying crazy things. And that's kind of justified, unfortunately, in some ways, because of all the nutball racism and classism and eugenic crap that litters our history. So I understand people's sensitive reaction to that, but it really doesn't follow. And it's not what I talk about in the book. And I talk about the fact that we can't really 
open up this conversation about what would realistic expectations be of parents and what are the implications of these unrealistic expectations? If we can't talk about that, we're really wedding ourselves to the status quo. And I think that's a trap. And the third big trap that I think parents are in is a political trap that if you look at another analogous big interest group, senior citizens, they are organized very differently to harness their political power. They have an organization called the American Association of Retired People, which has about 40 million members. It's extremely inclusive and it really frightens politicians. It's the reason why Social Security and Medicare are semi-sacred in our political system. Parents don't have anything like that. And I think that leads to a massive, obvious gap in our legislation. We don't have anything like Medicare or Social Security for children. And that's because parents are not harnessing their political power nearly as effectively as other big interest groups. So those are really the three traps that I focus on in the book. Well, before we jump into parenting, I want to take a look at schools because Parents spend an awful lot of time trying to get into the right school districts. And when we look at disparities in college admissions and disparities in lifetime income and earnings and success and so forth, I mean, these can usually be traced back to geography, right? They can be traced back to, in many ways, like, where did you grow up, right? Did you grow up in a wealthy neighborhood or did you grow up in a poor neighborhood? And a lot of people say, that, well, that's because if you grow up in the wealthy neighborhood, you get the good public schools. And if you grow up in the poor neighborhoods, you get the bad public schools. And I guess the conventional wisdom is that there are radical disparities in the amount of resources that are devoted to the public schooling in the wealthy districts and poor districts. And you challenge that empirically. So I guess there's two questions. One is, to what extent are there disparities in expenditures on public goods like public schools across different geographies? And if there aren't these huge differences, then why does geography still correlate so much with disparate outcomes? As you mentioned, I do think there is this persistent idea in America that schools primarily attended by rich kids have much greater funding than schools primarily attended by poor kids. That perception comes from a long history where it was, in fact, the case in the early 20th century up through after World War II, even there were these differences because we used to fund schools almost exclusively out of local property tax revenue. And that meant that if you lived in a rich area with expensive houses and a lot of successful businesses, you would have a much richer tax base to fund your schools. That has changed a lot because the tax base for schools has shifted to state and federal sources that are much more progressive than property tax. I mean, you're an economist, so like the whole Tibu model of public goods provision, right? I mean, that entire model was built on this idea that you selected your level of public goods based on willingness and ability to pay, right? Yes, that's right. The Tibo model has so many problems beyond just the role of federal and state spending. But if you look today at schools that are predominantly attended by lower income kids versus other schools that are not attended by predominantly lower income kids, the spending gap in terms of per student spending is something like 2%. There's really not much of a difference. And if you look at the nuts and bolts of those schools, you can see that the class sizes are similar. The teacher qualifications are pretty similar. There are some remaining differences in teacher qualifications, and I'm going to get to that in a second. I think that's not a result of something that the schools are doing per se. It's a result of what happens outside of school. So think about that 2% difference in school funding for schools attended by mostly lower income kids and other schools. If you look at home differences in 
educational spending, you know, the spending that families are asked to support on things like books and computers and tutoring and college application assistance and those kinds of enrichment goods. The spending gap is not 2%. It's over 1,500% if you look at upper and lower income groups. It's another world. It's really like once you realize that most child skill development is happening outside of that shred of time we support in the public education system, it really turns your views upside down because it's like Jim Crow levels of inequality outside of school. And those remain today. And that characterizes 90% of the hours that kids have available to build skills in childhood. So I really think the reason why these differences persist is because Yes, the kids who grew up in rich neighborhoods have a lot of advantages, but the vast majority of those advantages are happening outside of the public education system. And that bleeds into the public education system in indirect ways. But it's because the public education system has such a small grip on what is happening in children's lives. I mentioned before that I said I would come back to this, that there are some residual differences in the kinds of teachers that rich and poor schools can hire. That is a symptom of the other inequality outside of school, because it's a harder job to teach in a low-income school. And when you're paying equal pay for a harder job, you're going to have a tougher time recruiting and retaining talent. Right. So these huge differences in terms of outcomes can be traced back to differences in skill development, right, across these individuals. What kind of skills are we talking about? I mean, are we simply talking about kind of reading and writing and so forth? Or are there a whole suite of other skills that correlate well with lifetime outcomes? Yeah. A big shift in economics over the last 30 years or so has been a much greater appreciation for this broader portfolio of skills that feed into lifelong success. It's no longer this obsessive focus on test scores and reading and writing and math. As you mentioned, people now appreciate the, I mean, Non-economists always appreciated this, but, you know, economists tend to fixate on what they can measure and do statistics with. And so now economists are coming on board as well to realize the extreme importance of things like social skills, empathy, your ability to speak clearly and persuasively, communication skills, your ability to persevere when you suffer a setback or a rejection, your ability to control your emotions and your impulses in hot situations. So it's really this broader range of skills that we're talking about here in terms of the burden we place on parents and what schools can achieve, given that they have such a small share of children's time. So those wealthier households, you say, are spending 1,500% more on all sorts of stuff. Is that the primary way in which skills are developed through expenditure, or are there other attributes of the household that these families might have that would lead to differential outcomes. Yeah. So if you think about the advantages that higher income families bestow on their kids in terms of opportunities to build skills, you can break them up into two things. Families build some of those skills themselves as artisan skill builders in the home and families outsource some of that skill development. And richer families or more highly educated families have big advantages in both of those domains. If you have a child growing up in a household with two college educated parents, those parents can be much more effective tutors on average. All of this stuff I'm talking about, of course, it's on average, you know, there are so many exceptions. There are so many exceptions, but on average, a kid growing up in a higher educated household, their family can help them directly with their math homework. Their family can help them directly with their college application essays as almost professional editors. 
their families can help them navigate bureaucracy. They can help them get the mental health counselor by working through all the paperwork and talking to the right people at the right time and with the right tone of voice and pulling the right strings. There are all these complicated things that higher educated families can do themselves more effectively, but then they can also leverage their savvy and their financial resources to outsource a lot of things more effectively as well. So if they don't know how to help their kid with Algebra 2 homework and their kid is struggling and getting upset, they can hire a professional tutor. And that is both a financial thing that they can afford a professional tutor, but it's also a sort of deeper thing. Because if you don't know anything about the education system, you've never really felt comfortable with it, it hasn't been a place where you felt welcome, and you try to hire a professional tutor, even if you can afford it and you're willing to pay for it, it can be really intimidating because there's a million different tutors. Some of them charge $10 an hour. Some of them are free. Some of them are $300 an hour. It's crazy. And you might try to do this and just get kind of worried that you're going to be ripped off and give up. And so that's another advantage that rich families have is they can navigate the complex process of procuring expert assistance. Well, I mean, it's crazy to me, and I think you you mentioned this in the book, is that nobody receives any kind of formal training in becoming a parent, right? Before you're allowed to be a pediatrician, you need whatever, I don't know how many years of higher education devoted to pediatrics, right? You want to fly a helicopter, this is your favorite example, you got to, you got to, Spent a couple of years learning how to fly a helicopter. Yeah. And yet, you know, we just, we just, we just go and have kids and we're supposed to like know how to, how to, how to do this. I mean, I don't even think there's a single class you can take in college on, you know, parenting, right? No. I mean, at most universities, not even a single one unit right, yeah. that you can take, right? So, I mean, if we work as accountants by day and we get years of training in how to be an accountant, why is it that parents don't get formal training? I mean, is it just that? we assume it's easier than it is, or is it that we think that these skills are instinctual or do we think that they are handed down? And has this always been a problem? Maybe the kinds of skills that kids needed to develop in the middle ages, they learned unproblematically just out there following their parents around in the field. I mean, is this a problem that's a modern problem or is this kind of always been a problem with parenting? I think under the hood, this has always been a problem and a big source of the intergenerational persistence of social status and economic success has always been the related to the fact that we impose child development on parents as a private responsibility and a private burden. There's a great quote I cite in the book from a psychologist in the early 20th century saying the main advantage of kings has not been their genetics or anything. It has been access to extremely prestigious, professional, educational experts throughout their lives that help them learn how to do things in certain ways. And I think it's always been a problem. Intergenerational persistence, social mobility have been pretty bad in America for a long, long time and all around the world. If you grow up poor, you're at a huge disadvantage. It's just something we don't really talk about or we're not really willing to see because it, it would make the unfairness of inequality so jarringly clear. But the problem becomes higher stakes during periods of higher inequality. And today we're really in a period of high inequality. And so it feels scarier to think about the opportunity gaps between groups. I think you're right that there are two reasons why we don't even try to give parents formal training. One is, as you mentioned, we've had this mass delusion historically that parenting is easy and natural and doesn't require a lot of advanced skill or technique. 
And I think we're learning more about how deeply wrong that is. And I think that impression was bound up in gender roles and sexism historically. If we're going to both deem women inferior, as was the awful assumption historically, and we're going to give them responsibility for this one sector of society, which is raising children, we have to kind of make the assumption that raising children can't be that complicated and sophisticated and high stakes. And I think we're still recovering from that mistake. But in addition to assuming that skill development is much easier than it actually is, it also would be almost impossible today for parents to undergo the amount of training that would be required to gain proficiency in a lot of these more advanced skills. It would take a lot of training to help parents tutor their kids effectively in lots of different academic materials, or even to know how to outsource these successfully in the complicated tutoring marketplace. I keep coming back to tutoring as an example, but this is true for healthcare. It's true for mental health. It's true for early education, choosing the right childcare center or provider. It's true for college application assistance. And I think this is just an overwhelming problem. Like we don't train parents to fly airplanes. We just expect they're going to hire professional pilots and we regulate the market so that it's really hard to hire an incompetent professional pilot. And I think that's more in line with where we need to go with child skill development. Yeah, but I mean, that presumes that there is sort of a professional way to do it and sort of an amateur way to do it. And the professional way is better. And maybe there wouldn't be this disparity if there was no knowledge about it, right? You know, if you think back to the Middle Ages, I mean, a professional doctor and a folk medicine expert, there's probably not a lot of difference there. Maybe the professional might have even been worse. Yeah. Now, fast forward to the 20th century. And yeah, if you're an MD, you probably know a whole lot more than just a typical parent. So you'd want to seek out some medical advice. Yeah. So is this really only a problem because now we actually know some things, right? We do have some expertise in parenting that didn't exist before because we actually have done some research and we know the right way to do things. I think there have been known skills that you could build in kids for a long time. Just reading and writing are a simple example. Literacy. For a long time, parents had to help their kids learn to read and write. Help with math. It's clear that if you can learn how to do basic skills like this, it's been a big advantage for a long time. Also, just professional behavior in terms of tapping into the economy and getting jobs, how to interview for jobs, how to handle conflict, how to fight through adversity, and how to just recognize that things are hard at first and they get easier over time. Tapping into all the behavioral tricks that coaches have used for a long time to help people build skills. I think there's been a lot of opportunities afforded to higher income kids pretty clearly for a long time. And it's not just about the latest discovery in medicine about how to handle a gallbladder infection or something that is really more about the progress of modern science. I think it's been more basic than that. But what is interesting is that there are these huge disparities in terms of how much research goes into say medicine and how much goes into parenting. And in particular, we don't have a whole lot of RCTs on all of these different parental interventions. And when you read all these parenting books, about do this, do that. I mean, very few of them are supported by any kind of RCTs. Yeah. So I guess one question would be, why aren't we investing similar amounts of money into research, into parenting? And what's the problem with kind of random controlled trials. We do them all the time in medicine, yeah. right? Anytime some new thing pops up, we say, all right, we've got to run it through this RCT. Whereas it seems like when it comes to even teaching reading, not even at home, like parenting, but like even in the classroom, there don't appear to be nearly as many kind of experiments being done. Yeah. The biggest reason is funding. And it comes back to this political power differential between 
kids and parents and other interest groups. In the book, I talk about how child development is really under the hood without realizing it. It's the biggest industry in our economy. It's like a $5 trillion per year industry. It's bigger than healthcare. It's bigger than transportation and communication. And in these other industries, it's common to spend about 2% of your gross revenue on R&D, research and development, to innovate and to improve the efficiency of your operations over time. The child skill development industry, if you view it like that, spends approximately zero on research and development. Parents don't have time to do proper research and development. Most school districts don't have time to do proper research and development. It's really about a couple federal agencies, the biggest one being the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, which has a really incredible origin story that I talk about in the book and is really dramatic and fun. And this is really peanuts compared to the good example you mentioned of healthcare. So I think the reason why we don't have hundreds of large-scale clinical trials testing what works and what doesn't work in parenting and more specifically child development every year is just because we're not choosing to invest in the development of this knowledge. And I think it's a huge mistake we're making as a society. But look, I mean, with healthcare, we do some cost-benefit analysis. A lot of people can debate the methods and the numbers and so forth. But you mentioned in the book that we might spend $10,000 a month on a life-saving cancer drug yeah. to extend somebody's life, right? And again, we're not going to spend a million dollars. I mean, there is some limit to what we will spend. But when we look at those numbers, we're definitely not doing the same kind of calculations on, say, early childhood interventions. And we're definitely, if we are doing it, we're attaching a very, very different number, right, to the benefits than we are when we're talking about kind of life extension. So why is that? For instance, if we were to apply, say, a quality number, right? So you get an extra year of life, not great, okay, but it justifies $10,000 a month. Right. And if we say, okay, if we give you $10,000 for early child intervention and then boom, not only do you live longer, but you have higher quality of life and more income. And there, I mean, the ROI is presumably easier to measure. Yeah. So why do you think we're not spending more on understanding those kinds of return on investment. Yeah, I think it comes back to the political power difference that elderly people have come together in a bipartisan fashion to advocate for their needs. Republicans and Democrats all benefit from and support Social Security and Medicare. These programs are massive. They're like the largest social support programs in our budget. And it has led to not just fiscal differences and how we spend our tax dollars, but it has led to cultural and mindset differences in terms of what people feel entitled to and what is considered worthwhile. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. The fact that programs for kids, you know, people are so skeptical of them and they feel like it's really important to understand if they're perfectly efficient and prove that they not only benefit kids, but pay for themselves over time and pay taxpayers back. None of these questions are asked about what Medicare pays for or what social security accomplishes. With Medicare and social security, it's just, do people want these things? Great, let's give it to them within reason. And that's just a completely different mind share. And I think it comes from the political power gap between elderly folks and parents and kids. Well, it's clear that parents will invest enormous resources as individuals yes. in trying to improve the lot of their, their children. At least rich parents. But so it's just that they won't invest in political action, which would be a collective. Effort. Yes, it's much harder for parents. There are some structural reasons for that. Obviously, parents are a lot busier than retirees. If you're 68 and you're not working anymore, you can join a local group 
and you can spend time reading the paper and writing an email to your local official and calling your state senator to express your disappointment if they are doing something that compromises your benefit services. For parents, that's really way down on the priority list behind making sure you have diapers, making sure you have food on the table, making sure you don't lose your job and you can pay your mortgage. And you're just in a much less stable position as parents with less bandwidth. Even higher income parents really struggle to find time for political participation, I think. And I'm speaking personally. I'd love to go talk to my city council about some things that are really bothering me about the Bay Area, but I just don't have time. I have two young kids and my life feels like I'm trying to get by day by day. So that's a structural reason, but I think that shouldn't be an excuse. We can do a lot better coming together across party lines and keeping our eyes on the prize. I feel like we get sidetracked as parents by the red meat of all this cultural stuff about exactly what is in the curriculum at school, exactly you know how we talk about gender and race. And these are like really sad distractions from whether we can pay for childcare, whether we can pay for extracurricular and summer activities for our kids that are valuable, whether we can get healthcare and mental health care for our kids. These are things that people on, across the political spectrum would really value as parents. And I think there's a lot of upside potential to build the political ecosystem of parents more effectively. Now, in the book, you go through the history of sort of early childhood interventions and so forth. And you mentioned that there was a movement back in the 1820s, I guess, to provide children with early education. And then that kind of fizzled out yeah. for a while. So why did that fizzle out? Yeah, that's a fun case study. It fizzled out because it wasn't really based on science. It was based on prevailing opinions among elite experts about whether formal kinds of educational experiences were good for young kids, like two and three and four-year-olds, or bad for young kids. And it wasn't based, you mentioned earlier, there's a weird lack of randomized controlled trials in terms of understanding what works for children. And when there's no real scientific evidence base to draw on, and there's no movement toward scientific consensus, you wind up falling back on intellectual fashion. And what leading expert tends to be the most charismatic at any given point in time? And that leads to these wild fluctuations in terms of institutional drift. For a while, there were some charismatic experts speaking eloquently about the benefits of education for little kids. And then there were more charismatic experts speaking more eloquently about how this was actually dangerous and bad for kids. And that led to that kind of whipsaw that you see in our history. And that's why it's very useful to develop the scientific evidence base so that progress can be made consistently and there's going to be less whiplash. And you talk about some of these early leaders, particularly in Iowa, I think in North Carolina, there were a couple initiatives that were, I guess they were trying to establish these kind of research stations and they were modeling it after the farm research yeah. stations, right? And so how did these early pioneers get inspired to do what they did? And what was the lasting legacy of those early interventions? Oh man, Greg, I had so much fun writing this chapter. This is the first chapter of the book and it's all about the dramatic history of basically a hundred years of research on child development in a nutshell with some really cool characters. You mentioned Iowa. I start with this woman named Cora Hillis who lived a tough life. She grew up in the early, the beginning of the 20th century and was really politically activated by the National Congress of Mothers when there was a big annual convention in Iowa. Then she thought it was really cool to, that all these women were coming together to try to improve life for parents and kids. She herself came from a pretty 
established family. She was a very confident woman. Her father was a successful civil war leader and she wanted to do something big in her life. On a personal note, she wound up having five kids and losing three of them prematurely to diseases and accidents and things that she thought really should have been prevented. And she got really depressed for a while, understandably, from this tragedy. And she withdrew from her public life. But she came back really inspired to try to help other women and kids and families avoid these kinds of tragedies. And her view was that we were investing so much at this time in the early 20th century to improve agriculture, to do research and development, to understand what made cows and pigs and chickens really thrive, and to understand what made corn and soybeans and potatoes thrive. So why were we spending nothing to understand what would make children thrive? And that really animated her and shaped her approach to the problem. And she wound up, as you mentioned, wanting to develop a child welfare research station modeled after the very successful agricultural research stations, which had been opened up around the country to try to demonstrate new technologies that were shown to be more effective to farmers and to help these small farmers adopt these kinds of approaches to get better yields out of their farms. So she had this kind of harebrained idea and she went to all these different university presidents and political leaders and pitched it to them all around the state of Iowa. And she got rejected over and over and over in sometimes insulting ways. One Iowa university president told her, that's a cute idea, sweetheart. How about instead of creating a child development research station, you give us some money to get better church bells. That would also be really valuable. And she was furious about this, but she kept fighting. And eventually she won the day and she created the world's first child development research station in Iowa. And in the book, I talk about some of the incredible research that came out of that station that really pushed back against the idea that most success came from genetic differences and you couldn't really do much about it and opened up this new, more modern view that opportunity differences and learning environment differences play a much bigger role in the origins of human success. Well, look, I mean, that whole nature versus nurture debate, it's still alive. And even every parent has a different view of this yeah. in terms of what leads to the success of their child. And so a lot of press has been devoted to these adoption studies, right? And I've had some other conversations about this where people will say, oh, look at these two twins separated at birth and they both have rubber band ball collections, right? And so it's obviously, it's all genetics. Yeah. And you point out the restricted range problem. And this is a problem that I talk about in my statistics class quite a bit. Cool. Of course, the genetic differences are going to rise to the top when there's not a whole lot of variation in the environment. So you'd really want to know like, okay, let's put people into homes that are radically different. And that's just not going to happen because adoption is so restrictive and so difficult. Yeah. So first of all, is there a way that we can tease something out of the adoption studies and are there better adoption studies? And then secondly, talk a bit about the census data, right? Which seems to be unfolding all sorts of interesting insights and secrets. So yeah, I love that you bring up the restricted range problem. It is, as you mentioned, extremely hard to adopt. And in these identical twin studies, it's kind of like, hey, we took, we found identical twins. There's a tiny set of identical twins, sample of identical twins that does get separated at birth but they invariably get assigned to basically upper middle-class families, often in the same communities. And it's really nothing like the, I think when people hear about these adoption studies, what they have in mind is something like The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain, where people get assigned to a poor family and a rich family, but they have the same genetics. And so they wind up doing the same miraculously. And these studies are nothing like that. The studies that 
are like that. There are these really unusual studies that do find the exceptional cases where two siblings grow up in radically different environments that, and they really are more like the prince and the pauper kind of heuristic. And they find exactly what you would expect if you think your environment is really important. They find huge differences between the sibling that gets the more advantaged and the less advantaged environment growing up. Now, of course, as an economist, you would have loved to be there at the assignment stage. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, look, let's send this one over here and this one over there. But it would be very difficult to get an economist put in charge of an adoption bureau, right? Yeah, Greg, you want to start an adoption agency? You and I, really compelling pitch, the random assignment adoption agency. So some of these studies, the kids are adopted, the kids are separated very early in their life. So it's not like the amount of selection is a little bit limited because they're just babies. But there are also studies where they don't solve the restricted range problem. I bring up this one study by Bruce Sasserdote, which I think is amazing based on these Korean adoptees through the whole international mm-hmm. adoption agency. Bruce Sasserdote, an economist at Dartmouth, and he discovered that one adoption agency was in fact assigning kids to different families at random. And it was just, a they didn't mean to do it for research purposes, but that's just how they solved the problem. And he got really excited and he leveraged that to learn the importance of family background. Now, of course, he did not overcome the restricted range problem that you mentioned in this study. All of the parents adopting Korean kids in the Holt International Adoption Agency framework, they couldn't have criminal records. They couldn't be poor. They couldn't be unemployed. At the time, they probably couldn't be single parents. They really had to be largely upper middle class, stable households. So he still has this big restricted range problem, but he has random assignment. And within the narrow amount of variations, there was still some differences in terms of advantaged and less advantaged parents that kids were assigned to. And he finds pretty substantial differences in the outcomes of kids based on that stroke of luck about whether they were assigned to more or less advantaged families. And you can do a back of the envelope adjustment to sort of scale up those impacts based on what you would expect to find in the much wider wild west of American parents, you know, because there really are parents who have criminal backgrounds and dropped out of high school and all the normal parents in our society who have a much richer range of experiences for their kids. And if you do that calculation, you get just like the other kinds of adoption studies I mentioned, what kind of family you grow up in has huge implications on average for your lifelong outcomes. Yeah. And so, you know, what we'd really like are a lot of natural experiments. And one of the natural experiments you mentioned, which I thought was really interesting, is what happens when families win a lottery. And so you get all these resources. And if we think it's just about money, then we should see then big differences in outcomes with the children of these families. And we don't. Yeah. So clearly money has something to do with it, but it's something more than money, right? I mean, it's not simply, wow, I've got all this money. Now, all of a sudden, my kid is going to be more likely to go to college and more successful and so forth, right? Absolutely. Yeah. If you get a lot of money, if you're not comfortable and familiar in educational and healthcare environments, you're still going to struggle to be that effective advocate for your kid in the way that college-educated affluent families often are. And this was a finding that jumped out of the lottery study you mentioned, which was like really quantitatively persuasive. That was focusing on the outcome of college. And perhaps to some people's really surprised, the families that won the lottery right before their kids were going to go to college those kids were only slightly more likely to go to college. It was a really small impact. It was less surprising to some sociologists who had spent a lot of their career observing more and less advantaged families up close. This woman named Annette LaRoe is really famous in this area. She wrote an extraordinary book called Unequal Childhoods. 
And she kind of moved in with families and observed how they handled the day-to-day stresses of child development. And she concluded this was just extremely complicated. It was a very thick problem. Just to give one example in the tutoring case again, not only do you have to understand the math to help your kid with it, but you have to understand teaching methods. You can't just browbeat your kid. That won't be effective. You have to kind of trick them and coach them and motivate them. And that's a separate set of skills. And that complexity pervades the child development problem and is not going to go away if families just have more money. Yeah. I mean, the tutoring thing is particularly interesting because I know there are these huge disparities in parental tutoring and in the sort of upper income, highly educated families, there's a lot more tutoring. But I mean, when I was growing up, nobody's parents tutored anybody, even in the wealthy neighborhoods. And so that disparity, although it still existed, wasn't because of differential tutoring. Are we outsourcing more of the actual role of education in math and reading and so forth to parents relative to what we did in the past? There has been some research that this higher stakes, more intensive approach of parents today comes from the higher inequality that we're experiencing as a society today. So if you grew up in the 1950s, the difference between a kid who got a college degree and a kid who got a high school degree was not as kind of daunting as it is today. And so that may have led parents culturally to step back a little bit and just let things play out and be less manically involved in their kids' lives. But I do think there was a lot of implicit tutoring going on at the time, even if it wasn't as obvious as like helping you with math homework. I think just setting an expectation at home that you were going to take school seriously, encouraging kids when they did well, help noticing when kids were struggling at school, like knowing how to keep an eye out for the signs that the kid was not succeeding at school and intervening to like speak to their teachers or the principal or speaking to the kid to motivate them more, either through rewards, you know, like a lot of rich families pay kids for grades. That's a strategy that a lot of rich higher income families have used for a long time. I think there is a lot more of this implicit parental coaching and guidance than you might think if you just focus on, you know, sure, your parents might have not helped you with your math homework, but I think they may have been doing a lot of other kinds of direct one-on-one coaching and intervention. Yeah, absolutely. And while the thrust of your book is essentially about how we need to ask less of parents and maybe have these other support tools, but there are some things that really are the exclusive role of the parents. And you talk about this and you talk about how there have been some efforts to teach parents how to do the most important aspects of parenting. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about some of those interventions and how effective they've been and why is it that they are not as pervasive as they are? Parent training programs? Yeah. Yeah. So I was really curious about parent training programs in writing this book. And one thing I did was attend a parent training program myself. It was called The Parent Project. And I went to a three-month parent training program. I chose a program that was... One of the big problems with these programs is they don't have a lot of participants. It's, mm-hmm. Most parents don't have the time or inclination to attend a training program. They're busy. That means you get a very selected group of parents who show up to these programs. They tend to be more white. They tend to be more upper middle class. Parents who are probably be having a lot of advantages and resources in their parenting anyway outside of the parent training program. So I went to a parent training program that was, for many of the participants, mandatory. It was court-ordered because their kids were having a lot of interactions with the juvenile justice system. They were having pretty severe problems in terms of running away from home, substance abuse, 
threats of suicide, theft, stuff that is very hard for families to deal with. And so I went to this parent training program. I sat in this classroom after my full-time job, just like the other parents, week after week after week. And I got to see up close a lot of what the research was saying, that I could kind of feel why parents don't want to do these programs. You know, it was exhausting. I was struggling to stay awake. A lot of the other parents were struggling to stay awake. The instructors were doing their best and they were really cool instructors. They brought a lot of passion to their work and they were giving a lot of really good advice, but the advice was complicated. It's like, yeah, you can tell me how to fly a helicopter. You can give me like the six checklists that would, if I implemented them, help me fly a helicopter. But can I really digest all of these checklists and really put them to use under pressure in the moment? That seemed harder to me. And the program, of course, it didn't have time to let parents practice everything over and over again in simulated or real situations. So I felt like there was a lot of good information being conveyed, but we were all really tired. We had a lot of other things on our mind and it was going to be tough to really apply a lot of this useful knowledge in practice. Well, what I'm really interesting about it is that one of the core tenets of these parent training programs was, you know, really behavioral, right? It was very similar to training a dog. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it should be mandatory that if you want to own a dog, you got to go to doggy obedience school. I mean, I think that should be like a requirement for getting a license. That's the model we have for cars. It's really interesting how that model emerged for automobiles, but hasn't emerged for other things like pet ownership or parenting. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you should get a, you need a license to have a kid, but me neither. I think that'd be a terrible idea. But it is interesting that the basic tenets of this training aren't common wisdom, right? They're not conventional. It's not mainstream. It's not sort of the intuitive way that you would go about raising a child or maybe fixing a child that's problematic or difficult. Totally. Yeah. A lot of the knowledge was very unintuitive. It was a very rich experience. I will say while attending that program didn't really give me a lot of hope that parent training will be the way we level the playing field in this country. I don't think it's going to be that, but I do think it can be useful in limited situations. And for parents who have the time and inclination to do it, you can learn some really cool stuff. Like I use some of the stuff I learned in that program with my kid. Like every time we're about to try to punish our two-year-old for doing punish is too heavy a word, but like tell him, oh, that was bad. Maybe you shouldn't do that. We learned from that course, really make the punishment noticeable and short. Like if it's easy to fall into this thing of like, oh, if you don't clean up your Legos, you can't go to grandma's house tomorrow. And that is not enforceable. You're You're not going to take the trip to grandma away from your kid. That's one example of a really easy thing that parents fall into. So instead, I learned from that class, don't say that, say, clean up your Legos, or you can't have a glass of juice in five minutes. And it's like much more effective. And there's all kinds of these unintuitive jujitsu little moves that parents could learn if they had the time and the inclination and the money and the trust required to attend these kinds of training programs. Yeah. I mean, it seems that these insights apply also in public policy, right? So if you're trying to deter crime... Extending a prison sentence from 10 years to 20 years isn't going to make any difference, right? We're all kids. Adults are just powerful, eloquent kids. So a lot of the lessons from kids apply to adults as well. Mm -hmm. And you also say that there is this sort of peer effect. So while the parents and parental environment matters a great deal, there is this kind of peer impact. And usually when we talk about the peer impact, we're talking about kind of positive spillovers, right? Like if you take a kid from a poor neighborhood and 
place them and their parents in a wealthier neighborhood, even if the parent doesn't change anything about how they interact with the kid, yeah. this will have sort of positive spillovers on that kid, right? There have been a bunch of kind of RCTs that have done this, right? Yeah. But you also mentioned that there's a negative spillover, right? So if you put a difficult kid or a problematic kid in a pool of high performers, it's going to drag down high performers. Yeah. And so that's going to create a lot of resistance to these sort of resettlement schemes, yeah. so to speak, right? So is the positive impact outweigh the negative impact? If we just sort of randomized assignment of everybody, <laughs> would this increase the total pie or would it decrease the total pie? Well, I think it would cause revolution because people would be so angry <laughs> for good reason. I think it's less palatable politically, especially on the left, to talk about these negative spillovers. People on the left often really want to believe that if you just integrated everybody, only good things would happen. From everybody's perspective, there would be no tough trade-offs. And I think that's wrong. I think that's unrealistic. That's why in the book, I don't focus on these social engineering kinds of solutions. I don't think busing or really leaning into heavy-handed integration across class or race lines, I think those are less promising. They'll cause so much political backlash. Instead, I focus on direct skill development interventions in kids. Because to talk about one of the biggest gaps in our child development system, early childhood and childcare, Right now, we let lower-income kids reach kindergarten way behind higher-income kids because we are placing an unrealistic burden on their parents to find high-quality childcare from birth to, to age five. That means when those lower-income kids show up at school, there's a risk of these negative peer effects because these kids have gotten so much less support and so much less investment before age five. We do not need to solve this problem by forcing integration in a very politically charged way. The better approach is to close that gap so that all families have access to high quality early learning environments before kindergarten. And that way, when lower income kids show up at school in kindergarten, there is no risk of a negative peer effect because they have similar levels of skill development as higher income kids. I think we can get much more equality in our K-12 system and much less risks and fear around integration if we close these opportunity gaps outside of school. Now, while we highlighted big differences between our approach to healthcare and our approach to skill development, right, where we clearly are investing a whole lot more in the research around healthcare, there is one similarity, which is that we spend a lot more time kind of fixing problems rather than preventing them in both healthcare and in skill development. Oh my gosh, yeah. So, I mean, at the university level, we're always thinking, okay, how do we redress these imbalances and so forth? But it's almost too late, right, when you get to that place. I mean, we focus so much on remedying these problems rather than preventing them from happening at inception. Well, I know what you mean in healthcare, like all the investment in surgery and handling cardiovascular and blood pressure problems in your 50s and 60s, which could have been prevented with better diet and exercise decades ago. That really resonates. And I think a lot of healthcare workers would agree with you. In child development, I think we're just not really investing in anything. I don't think it's not like we have these big investments in remediation programs either. I think we don't invest in prevention or remediation in child development. I'm not sure there is this huge difference there. Well, I guess what I meant is that we see inequality at the adult level, right? We look at income. We look at how much people pay yeah. in taxes on their earned income. And we have a lot of progressive proposals to reduce that income gap through taxation. I see. But yeah. if the disparities in, in one's income 
were not as great to begin with, then we wouldn't need to remedy them as aggressively, perhaps with redistributive taxation, right? Yeah, no, that's a wonderful point. Now I see what you're getting at. I think progressives in America today really struggle with this idea of talking about inequality in parenting. I think they feel like they're blaming somebody. I think it's part of the parent trap that we talked about at the start of this conversation. Progressives kind of have to, if they want to be politically correct, they have to pretend like all parents are doing an equally good job and poor kids get you know, reach adulthood similar to rich kids with similar skills and black and white kids have similar skills. And it's really just about discrimination and these bad business owners and these bad managers who are unfairly discriminating against certain kinds of people. And I think progressives would have a lot more effective policy recommendations if they did focus more on childhood, especially early childhood. And to progressives credit, a lot of them are like a lot of people like Elizabeth Warren have really focused their career on improving our early childhood development systems. President Biden tried to get through a program that would have done a lot to close gaps in early learning environments. And it had some support for extracurricular and after school and summer activities. And it just failed by one vote. If we can convince Joe Manchin that closing opportunity gaps in childhood is a really important, worthwhile investment of taxpayer dollars, then we would make a lot of progress. So I do feel that would be a really great direction for progressives to go. And I think they'd get more bipartisan support as well. One way that we can talk about this potentially is perhaps a bigger government for kids is the best way to get a smaller government for adults. If you look at what predicts reliance on the social safety net in terms of disability insurance, unemployment insurance, welfare, earned income tax credit, all these things that conservatives really don't want people to rely on, By far, the biggest predictor of that is educational attainment, which is just a proxy measure for childhood skill development. And so, yeah, if we could all come together and agree that kids need more universal support from professionals like tutors and teachers and counselors and nurses in their local communities, and that would help people reach adulthood ready to stand independently and not rely as much on government programs. I think that's a really promising direction for progressives to push on. Yeah. And you call this suite of proposals family care, right? That's your overarching title for a whole suite of recommendations. Yeah. Family care, because it sounds like Medicare. And I just want to tap into that sacrosanct political nature of Medicare. Well, I think it's because it's hard to find people that oppose Medicare. I think there's a lot of people that oppose the Great Society initiatives of the 60s, but you know, not a lot of people oppose the New Deal initiatives from the 1930s. Now, of course, I think critics would say, that this is bound to be mired in bureaucracy and it's going to be inefficient and that government is going to do a poor job. I think you have some responses to that critique and you have more faith in the government's capacity to launch these initiatives. Would you need to rest decision-making powers in sort of a disinterested bureaucracy in order for this to work? Would this work best at the federal level or are some of the initiatives that you propose things that can be adopted at a local level? I think it could be rolled out at a very local level. However, I do think there is a big risk of the federal government. Well, let me step back for a second. Family care, the initiative that I propose in the book, it would level the playing field in that 90% of time that kids currently spend outside of school. It would be better access to early childhood learning environments, good local child care centers, better access to after-school extracurricular programs, summer programs, mental health services, tutoring college application assistance, all these things that high-income families really are able to provide a lot of opportunities for their kids outside of school, that playing field would be leveled by family care. 
Family care would not be, as I advocated, it would not be a big new monolithic federal program where a federal agency would be hiring all the tutors and nurses and counselors and coaches. Not at all. It would be like Medicare. Medicare has the federal government write checks to local private providers in your community. These are local physicians in their private practices, local hospitals, nonprofit, often religious hospitals getting reimbursements from Medicare. That's how I'm proposing this to work. And many religious organizations could benefit from family care. I think there are great child care centers at churches and mosques and temples as well, and they could be eligible for reimbursement as long as they are teaching not just scripture, they have to be teaching behavioral and cognitive skills as well. So the role of the federal government here would be to provide guardrails to assure that parents can trust the people who they're going to for these services, just like with Medicare. Medicare won't reimburse a witch doctor <laughs> because there's not a, that level of research to back up the efficacy of what they're practicing. And so a big part of this would also require research into what works and what doesn't Absolutely. work. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. We've talked earlier in this conversation about how the child development sector is really impoverished in terms of its investment in research. And we really should be spending 25 or 50 times more than we currently spend on research. And that would do a lot to help guide the direction of these investments into more effective interventions. So that's what family care would accomplish. And I think it's sort of like we're missing Medicare for parents and it's called family care. For old people, the biggest problem is taking care of their health problems. For families, the biggest problem is taking care of their children's child development. And that's the huge gap in our federal system. Now, to come back to your concern, which I think is so valid, would the federal government create a really clunky spider web of red tape and make this just a bad program? I think there's a huge risk of that. There's a wonderful book out recently by Jennifer Palka, who founded Code for America, that really gives you a flavor of how poorly designed a lot of government programs are. She talks about Medicare. She talks about unemployment insurance. She talks about all kinds of things. So I do think in parallel, while Medicare, it's really valuable to work on that problem and to improve our democratic representative government so it can function more effectively because this is not predestined. But I, it's also really important to point out that even when programs are clunky and bureaucratic, they can be really beneficial and effective. Like Medicare is not pleasant for physicians. Physicians justifiably hate the reimbursement procedures of Medicare. I hope we can improve that over time. However, senior citizens love Medicare because it's giving them the health care that they need. And one of the proposals, last proposal, is the formation of something like an ARP for parents. And so one question I have for you is, are you trying to do this? Are you launching this? Are you involved in maybe switching the PTA over to something that looks more like the ARP? I have been trying to speak with the PTA. I don't really know if they can really change their strategy. So far, I've failed to really reach anybody there. They've declined any invitations to discuss things. I would love to start this organization, honestly, Greg. I would love to start freaking going to the hospital and meeting parents as they walk in and out of the labor and delivery room, not right after they had their baby, but when they're going to their OBGYNs, when they're going to their pediatricians, working with pediatricians to like build this organization, to tell parents, hey, if you join this organization for $10 a year, you will get even bigger discount on your Amazon Prime childbirth registry and your Walmart registry. I think there's so much cool stuff. You could get better access. You could get a discount on life insurance because all parents, when their kid turns two or three or four, they start to realize, wait a minute, we're barely keeping things together right now. What happens if one of us gets in a car accident? Shoot, maybe we should look into life insurance. Just like the AARP licenses itself 
to certain health insurance policies and makes a lot of money doing that, the National Association of Parents and Guardians or whatever could do the same thing with life insurance. And I would love to start pouring my life into this, but I have two little kids, the second kid three weeks ago, four weeks ago. I'm barely able to make this wonderful opportunity to speak with you today. And I have a mortgage. I have to have a full-time job. So I don't think I'm the right person for a number of reasons to really start doing this. But I hope one effect that my book can have is to inspire some other people to start thinking about this. People maybe who have inspiring personal biographies and who are very bipartisan by nature, not inflammatory, more inspiring. And there's 300 million people in America. I hope I'm kind of putting a little light out there to inspire people to create this much needed organization. Well, you're out here in the Bay Area. So, you know, this is where a lot of these ideas get started. So maybe we'll see it happen. Book is called Parent Trap, How to Stop Overloading Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis. Nate, thanks so much for chatting. Thanks so much for the opportunity to be here today, Greg. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.